pledge allegiance to the band. It may perhaps discourage you, unless of your kidney, or infected with this vicious virus, that you'll be ordered to pay a fine of 75 pounds. I'll pay now, go boy. Just make 10 louder and make 10 be the top number and make that a little louder. These guys would have it. Welcome to Movies at Rock, a rock and roll journey through cinema. I'm your host, Josh Fitzgerald. His podcast debut today is my friend Philip. How are you doing today? I'm doing fine. Good. Thanks doing for. Fine. Uh, it's, like, it's great to be here. Thank you for you're... having me on. Oh, you're very welcome. I always am excited when I have new guests that want to be on here, especially people who have never done podcasting before. It always is exciting that. It's exciting to be the gateway drug, so to speak, <laughs> into podcasting. So tell us a little bit about yourself. What um, I know that you. Um, are the keeper of a pretty comprehensive Rock and Roll Hall of Fame blog. And me, my, myself, I've always been kind of like a peripheral Hall follower. I've, I've always kept a, a finger on the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame stuff, but I've never really interacted all that much. But Well, that's pretty high praise. I would hardly call my, my personal blog comprehensive. I'm part of the future rock legends community. That is the comprehensive that's fair. Everything. That's fair. But usually um, your posts have are pretty ex- extensive with the um, you know, with, as far as like analysis of the nominees and whatnot go. At least in my experience. Extensive is a good word. I think people would just like to say lengthy. <laughs> I, I I try to keep them briefer now, but I I just cannot. It's a total failure on my part for some reason. I just cannot. Stop. Hey, when you have thoughts, there's nothing wrong with sharing it with the world, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just something I've always been fascinated by. I've just never really interacted. Just, be, just because it's it can be kind of an intimidating playing field with so many opinions go, you know, coming and going that it, I think that intimidates me a little bit. It can be. I remember when I first uh, found the community, there were a lot of naysayers for acts that I liked, mm-hmm. and it, it was kind of hard to swallow at first, but... Yeah, me as well. <laughs> time, at the same time, too, I've also been a member of online communities for several years prior to that, and you learn a little bit about debating online with, with different people. Sometimes you just got to come in swinging your brass knuckles, and sometimes <laughs> you can be a little bit more tactful. It's probably but, like a case-by-case basis. It is. I, I think the people I first interacted with, you had to come in swinging hard. But the people who come in now, I have to say, I really respect and enjoy their opinions. I certainly have my glaring weak spots when it comes to music knowledge. And I freely admit it. And I'm always looking to be edified. I I admit I'm a little bit lazy on doing my own research, but I love to read up on it and be informed when other people bring it to me and, and say, hey, this is pertinent. You need to know this. Right. So that's kind of how I learn. It's not the best way, but uh, <laughs> self-motivation, unfortunately, not my strong suit. Oh, it's trust me, that's for a lot of people, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you been to the museum before in Cleveland? I haven't. That's the strange oh, thing. Oh, I'm from Michigan, too, originally, so you'd figure at some point I would have made the trek, but I grew up in the sticks, 
I, I'm a rural <laughs> boy, a country boy, mm-hmm. um, on the west side near Lake Michigan. Cleveland was actually a bit of a drive for me, and I've just never been able to afford it. Now, now that I live out on the west coast, I probably could afford it, but now I don't know if I could afford the plane ticket, let right, alone the, right. the lockdown. That so. is true. Yeah. I I usually go at least once a year because I'm in Buffalo, and, and my house is about two and a half hours from the Hall of Fame. So oh. it's an easy day trip. We're here today to talk about a, mo- a movie that you chose, which I'm really excited to talk about. This was my first time seeing either the movie or the, the well, I never saw the play, seeing any incarnation of Jersey Boys, which is the 2014 Clint Eastwood film. Now, but before we get into it, actually, let's talk a little bit about um, Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. Absolutely. Please. Evergreen pop unit, which is just, I just... I, I'm still in love with all their songs. It's, they're so absolutely, and yeah. it, I love the way that you use the word evergreen there because when the musical first came out, a lot of the interviews with the man on the street following performances of the Broadway show, a lot of the people they interviewed said, "I had no idea they were responsible for so many of the songs that I loved." Like you think of all these songs, you can't quite remember who the artist is. And you find out they're all the four seasons. Right. How awesome is that? I've forgotten about a few of them watching this movie. Like working my way back to you is I'm like, oh yeah, of course that's that's Frankie Valley in the four seasons, you know? <laughs> There's of just course. so many of them that just I and even into the seventies, you know. There's Yep. All the way up to the You know, Greece. they're actually one of the few acts that had a billboard hit in the fifties, sixties, seventies. 80s and 90s really i did not know that i i think there are there are two more that i know for sure there might be another one i know uh ray charles and the isley brothers both no kidding accomplished that feat as well wow i didn't realize that yep. and i and i think if, if you include the christmas charts you're gonna have bing crosby <laughs> right. on it i think i think louis armstrong might have even had like a Christmas hit in the seventies between his Hello Dolly and mm. uh, What a Wonderful World with, in the movie Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah, I could see a What a Wonderful World like charting decade after decade. I think I first encountered the music of the Four Seasons actually from the Time Life commercial of their no kidding promoting <laughs> the the CD or well, probably then a record that are a cassette tape set of their songs that kind of, you know, did the little sniplets and had the scrolling track listing. Those were classic. Those were my favorite TV shows. (laughs) Yeah. You know, watching some of the, if I remember correctly, they usually came on during the game shows that I would watch with my, with my mom, you know, Price is Right or Wheel of Fortune. Yep. Once I started listening to oldies radio a bit more, then I really latched on to the Four Seasons and I was up. Yeah, and that that voice that just soars to heaven. It's incredible. That the Frankie's countertenor from like '64 to '67. The production values of those records I thought were just amazing. They really are. They they stand out in a in a sea of beautiful pop music. They really rise to the top. I think they sure do. I want to say it was back in 2007. My timeline may be off, mm-hmm. but there was an actual remix of one of their songs, Beggin', and it was done by Madcon. I 
I'm not sure. I do know it was getting some airplay. Wow. But I think it was credited mostly to just MadCon and that the four seasons may not have gotten the credit. That could have been six consecutive decades of hits right there. Oh, we were hoping for it so much. This is going to put you on the spot, but this is a movies that rock tradition. Do you have a top three songs by Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons? Top three songs? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't really ranked them. I, I will say my all-time favorite, though, is Tell It to the Rain. Oh, yeah. Um, I forgot about that one. Yeah. I love that song. It's also very unusual in terms of subject matter because a lot of their songs prior to that were the guy trying to plead with the woman saying i know i'm no good or you're too good for me or things like that tell it to the rain is a you know don't let the door hit you on the way out i I love at the end of the song where they do that have that thunder clap as they're going court out through the chorus i thought it was a cello at first and Mm. i actually talked to joe long the bassist in the band at that time that was that was a Bob Gaudio's keyboard doing that, making that effect. My number three is sure. let is let's hang on. Let's hang on to what we got. No red, no good, we got a lot. Got a lot of love between us. Hang on, hang on, hang on to what we got. I almost picked Sherry, but I, I decided for this one because I, it's not as it's more fresh to me. You know, sure. but Sherry also has a special place in my heart because I had a, a student named Sherry who was from Guatemala, who had never been to school before. She was in fourth grade. Um, she didn't couldn't read, didn't know how to speak any English, but she knew her name was Sherry. So I, I, in school, we would play that song for her. And and um, she didn't know what it was saying, but she recognized, you know, like her name in the song. Okay. The, but then she ended up having to she got ended up getting deported before the end of the year, which was a whole other Aww. sad issue. So I always think of her when I hear that song. Um, okay. but yeah, maybe I'll, it's a, it's a tie for those two, I think. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, another one, if you ask any group of four seasons fans, the general consensus for the all time favorite song is going to be pretty much across the board ragdoll. That's my number and one. I was going to, yes. Song. That it's, is, I think it's one of the best pop songs of the sixties, like, like bar none. Yeah. The, the inspiration story, even the fact that the Four Seasons couldn't get into their normal studio at the time to cut that song. They had to go to a studio they weren't familiar with. In fact, they had to record this in a studio that had kind of a foreign feel to it. Yeah. And they still managed to produce something like that. It's remarkable. Amazing. I didn't story. know that story about the recording studio. That's interesting. Yeah. Sad, right, 
I had to pick. There's so many good songs. How do you choose? I know, I know. You know, I think I'm going to go with one that not many people think of. This is uh, this is one I like to point to when you talk about the production values and how polished the group could sound and how it all just clicks so well. I'm going to have to say, save it for me. Not what a lot of people think of, but right. And it came out in '64, so that was when they were really starting to pick up momentum, despite the fact that the British invasion had just landed. Don't let your the time that Motown was really finding it underneath them and starting to take off. For my last choice, we're going to go into the 70s, actually, and it's Who Loves You. That's the comeback. Yeah. I've never been like super fond of Oh What A Night. That was never one of my favorites because they're on the same album. For some reason, Who Loves You is the one that always is the go-to for me. And it's so catchy and fun and danceable. Frankie wasn't even supposed to be the lead vocal on that song originally either. Really? It was it was supposed to be uh, Don Ciccone, one of the 70s members. And I don't know how it ended up that Frankie ended up re-recording it with his vocals on top. But I think that was the correct decision because if you mm-hmm. put something out with a Four Seasons name on it, you don't hear Frankie's voice on the record you're thinking oh this is a different group trying to be a knockoff or whatever and you don't realize yeah. no it's the continuation of the story you know with december 1963 there are three lead singers on that and yeah you have jerry don jerry polsky and then don and frankie and then jerry really took over the lead singing uh after that on subsequent songs mm-hmm. silver star rhapsody down the hall and he's a strong uh, vocalist too it just isn't quite as distinct as as frankie's you know i'm frankie valley you can pick out in a you know (laughs) immediately recognizable unfortunately that also makes frankie valley's voice a bit polarizing i know a lot of people hate frankie valley's voice but i found it a little jarring in the movie actually when he started singing for the first time out out of the context of the songs i was like oh it's kind of a little shrill well, and you also got to remember they're portraying it in the movie at that point as not being quite finely honed yet. Yeah, that's true. You have everybody at the time reminding Frankie, do your exercises, do your exercises, chest voice, not head voice. Right. So obviously you're still catching him in his walk site, say his rough ore, not quite mm-hmm. finely melted yet <laughs> still a work in progress <laughs> exactly um and he's still to this day he's still on tour it, he it does. it's kind of a funny story funny story um a friend of mine um pat francis who who hosts the rock solid podcast he um <laughs> he he's a big frankie valley fan too and um he went to see him he has a funny story from maybe five or six years ago he went to see frankie valley 
he said it, it kind of bummed him out a little bit because it was very obvious that he lip sang everything. And, and like it was very off, like the, his mouthing of the words were really off. But then after the concert, he went he went behind the theater to get his autograph, as he tends to do at every show. And there are a lot of people there. And he came out and um, Frankie was signing everything. And people were saying, yeah, you sound so great still. And Frankie was like, oh, thank you. You know, I'm still trying to keep my voice intact. Everything then Pat was like, you lip sang, dude. <laughs> What's up with that? Oh, <laughs> But God I mean, bless him for still putting himself is, out there. I mean, the guy is 80. Well, back then he would have been 80. Right. 80, I mean, Late 70s, early 80s, yeah. He's, 85, he's going to be 86 next month. Right. God bless him for still putting himself out there. Or At least he's still not paying off those uh, loan sharks. Yep. So I want to I wanna ask you, have you seen it on stage before? Not live. I, I have seen it, but not live. Okay, I haven't seen it at at all. I I did like just a couple of clips here and there, and it and I know it's very beloved. People adore Jersey Boys, and I imagine it has an amazing energy on stage. And then, it does. yeah, um, and there's, there's actually a couple. There's actually a couple things that I thought the movie omitted or cut out that really I think would have helped if they had kept it in. Well, that brings up an interesting point because the movie was not really very well received when it came out. No, and even when I first saw it too, I I couldn't quite put my finger on what it was, and I don't know if I still can. But mm-hmm. at the time, I remember thinking, you know, finding out this was a Clint Eastwood film that he directed it, I was left thinking, did Clint just phone it in? I think there are some things that that he included in the movie that might have worked a little bit better on stage but don't translate to film very well that's like, entirely possible yeah like the one thing that i noticed and, I, and I, actually i'll put this right out there i actually enjoyed the movie very much it it it, it won me over and and i i had a really good t- i mean there were there's always it's, it's not a perfect movie by any means but well, i don't think it was like a complete i don't didn't think it was a complete bomb like a lot of people a lot well, of critics would have you think too, but this is a movie that the more you watch it, the more it really grows on you. Not in a cult classic way, but you just realize yeah. it's a lot better than your first impression was. Right, and I'm not I, I'm not a big biopic person in general, but it's yeah, I I, I really enjoyed it. I I think the one thing that stood out to me when I watched it that didn't really work that probably worked really well on stage was having the actors breaking the fourth wall to tell the story rather than letting the okay. story just kind of tell itself. Cause there was a lot of things that were happening that were really interesting. And then like Tony would turn and face the camera and explain it. And like, you don't really need that. It kind of took me out of the scenes, okay. but I could see no, it I working think... on stage really well. And well, I can tell you the reason for this though, was it was supposed to be kind of an artistic, if you will, pun on four seasons. Mm-hmm. You start with the spring as narrated through the point of view of Tommy DeVito mm-hmm. and then summer phase of it with uh, Bob Gaudio doing the narration. Then of course the subsequent fall with Nick Massey and then Frankie as the quote unquote winter doesn't really break the fourth wall except at the very end. Mm-hmm. But uh, he, he does voiceovers at first kind of making it seem like he's talking to somebody else in the room at the time. I mean, you could have had, for example, the moment when Gaudio first hears Frankie singing, you could have had like a voiceover in, in his head as he stares transfixed at Frankie, and that that would have worked fine too. But I mean, I liked it. 
I like that device, but I can understand why some people didn't like it too. But I, I thought it worked. Yeah, I think it would. I could definitely see it being like a brilliant device in the in the musical too, because also too in the musical, like the sets were very minimal, and, the, sure. and in order to paint that picture. Um, I think that would have been a really cool way to, to do that and to kind of bring the audience along inside of it. You know, what they were saying wasn't bad. I just maybe I think the, the concept of the four seasons pun maybe was not clear enough for me. That might have been where it was a little uh, like shaky on that. But that was actually probably my biggest issue with the movie. And that was actually a very minor one. So, OK, you yeah. know, I, I will say my biggest gripe is that and this again, this is such a, a minor thing, too, but. At the end, when they do the big dance music number, I love the number. Yeah. But then everyone's just there at the end when it's finished. <laughs> oh, yes. Everyone is holding it. And like this, just like so pointing for. <laughs> as Gary starts blinking. And it's bizarre. And at some point, when you start seeing blinking eyelids and thoraxes. Right. It's very weird. Falling as they breathe heavily. It's like, you need to hold it out that long. If you're going to hold it out that long, just freeze frame it. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> it's uncomfortable That's watching like Christopher Walken's arm shake and, and other people's <laughs> blinking. <you know? laughs> yeah. I could like uh, again, almost hear like, the director saying, hold, hold it, hold it while he's doing his camera. Like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was probably the one thing I didn't like, you know, that, that they did them doing it for that long at the end. But again, you understand yeah. why they did it. Yeah. At least I, I think I do. <laughs> it was a very peculiar artistic choice. I'm not 100 percent sure why they did that either, but 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 there was a very energetic number. Yeah, and it was a tip of the hat to the Broadway mm-hmm. show to have as a big encore as a stage performance would be when the cast comes out to take their bows, and here they do it as a. I think they actually did it in commentary. They called it a Bollywood. Ah, uh, yeah. Or at some point, too, and that's a good point. I didn't think of that, but that is very Bollywood. It is, but I again, I I liked it as a tip to the tip of the hat to the Broadway show, and mm-hmm. and it's pretty cool that the right, like very uh, yeah, it, I thought it was cool that a, a pretty decent number of the actors from the original show reprised their role on the uh, on the film or in the movie. Seasons themselves, yes, yeah. Including John Lloyd Young as um as Frankie, and the, the guy who won the the Tony, I believe, for lead acting in the musical. Yeah, that's right. And I thought they did a good job. Like a lot of times, stage actors when they go to film, um, it's a whole different acting language, and and it sometimes the transition is tough. But they did. I thought they did a great job. I thought they did too. Although I do think that may have been a little bit of a difficulty with making the transition from the, the boards to the silver screen mm-hmm. is having to change your mentality that radically to make it work for the yeah. camera instead of the audience. Where right. You don't have to play to the cheap like, seats on film. Whereas something like blocking isn't as big a concern necessarily because you can always fix it with a different camera angle. But That's on stage, true. you can't do that. Your blocking has to be on. It's, it's, set that way for a very specific reason like as far as you know like big broad movements of the actors and things like that that has to be because when the camera's like right on top of you it can come off as 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 cartoonish if you're overacting like you would on stage to play to an entire theater full of people 
but I but I thought yeah. that they avoided that pretty well. I think the, maybe the only overkill element was maybe the accents were a little much, but even that wasn't you know they they kind of it flirted with stereotype at times, but it, it that's how you that, know. But you also mm-hmm. remember, I mean, I I hate to say this, but as we've heard before, stereotypes exist for a reason. Right. I mean, who is to say that the whole yay from Jersey kind of thing doesn't. It was appropriate. Of those neighborhoods like Belleville where Tommy and Nick right. from. Yeah, part of that, of course, is because it comes from these actors who played these people on the stage. And Don Lloyd Young spent a lot of time with Frankie himself. Yeah. Kind of soaking up all that was Castelluccio to make the character come to life. I wonder how Frankie felt about the, the finished product of the movie. I didn't see anything, um, you know, any comments or anything about it. I'm just curious as to his thoughts on it. Uh, I am not 100% certain on that one either. I was, most of my uh, research, I guess you would say, after the fact was more of coming to terms with, like, where does history not mesh with the way it was portrayed? Mm-hmm. And because this was, at the time, this was what was called a jukebox musical, yeah. where the actual timeline chronology of some of the songs was intentionally flubbed so that they could cram as many of those songs into the length of the show. So you have that. I think I know a lot of the inconsistencies, or at least the ones I was looking for, came from mostly from Tommy DeVito's end up, let's just say. It's it's not like something like Bohemian Rhapsody where it's a straight up where they change a lot of it for dramatic effect. It was more just to fit the format of the of the play, right? There there was a little bit of fudging of the historical accuracy. Uh the connection to the mafia, for example, is grossly overstated. Especially from Tommy because he's the one who kinda of gets crucified in the movie for it, but yeah. Um, Frankie, to a, a certain extent, has also corroborated Tommy's story that they weren't members of the mob. They were mostly musicians, and that's where they made all their income. You know, Tommy was not a gopher for Jip DiCarlo, necessarily. Right. He was a friend of DiCarlo's, but he wasn't a lack doing odd jobs. Because so, the movie uh, was like Goodfellas the musical in, in some parts of it. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is true that Tommy and Nick did a bit of time before they became famous, but mm-hmm. nothing that insinuated links to organized crime. Yeah, because that was a pretty crucial part of the, the middle portion of the movie. Yeah, the, the, debt, the debt itself was real, and so was Mr. DiCarlo's help in organizing that. But I'm talking more like at the beginning where... The formative scenes at the start. Yeah, it, it's basically doing everything you can to ingratiate himself to Jip. Lovingly acted, I must say. Let's talk about Christopher Walken real quick, because I, I didn't even know he was in this movie, and then he popped on screen. I was like, What? Oh my God, it's Christopher Walken. <laughs> I immediately thought of him dancing. If you've seen The Deer Hunter, that famous moment of him uh, dancing to Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. 
It's, oh, it's like a go. really, it's a really um, huge part of that movie back in the seventies when "Can't Take My Eyes Off You" was kind of having being a hit again. I think it was because of that movie, and so I, I kind of was wondering if that was maybe his way of tipping his hat to or Frankie, letting them have the rights to that song for him to dance to and becoming a star really from that. I I couldn't tell you one way or the other, unfortunately. <laughs> he was a blast to watch in the movie. He's always he fun was. to watch. I know in the Broadway play, the scene where Jip cries at. Frankie singing My Mother's Eyes is mm. definitely more exaggerated. And just getting back to what you were saying earlier, having the camera on you allows for more subtlety. And But that's one of those things that turned out to be 100% true. The singing of My Mother's Eyes caused this man of great influence to well up into tears. And, that was and a really sweet moment. And that's, that's why My Mother's Eyes has also been a, a staple in Valley's repertoire, even though it oh, was yeah. never uh, a hit for him or the seasons. I know he recorded it, I think, as far back as 1953, he tried to oh, record wow. a version of it. I believe it was also on one of the Four Seasons albums at one point. I can't remember which one, but I do know it was also part of a, or it was a track on one of Frankie Valley's solo albums later, mm. too. So. That song it, very important to Frankie. Yeah, I was gonna say that's that's one of his um, signature songs, really, as far as probably his solo work goes. Maybe not was as known, but one that really is maybe quintessential Frankie Valley. You know, I would say so. Yeah, that it kind of makes me think of, of when you were saying that the um, that the record didn't go anywhere. I, I really enjoyed seeing like the, the the machinations of the record industry in this movie and the way that they. They treated them when they were first, when the four seasons were first starting to get their foot in the door. You know, that's one of the things I loved about the Brill Building scene too. Yeah, they're going around getting the door slammed in their face. Very poignant moment too is when they go to the one office. It's like you're not black, or you're not. You know, <laughs> oh, the four lovers are a colored group. And like, no, no, no. And he actually sings for them to prove that mm-hmm. that's who they are. And Great. Come back when you're black. Right. <laughs> so, and it also shows the Four Seasons, as at least in my opinion, as pioneers of blue-eyed soul. Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, at, at that time, white acts, of course, at the time, they would have considered themselves Italian, not white. But yeah, that's most true. Of people, they would have been considered white. The covering of black songs by white artists was considered sanitization at the time. Now we would call it cultural appropriation or just outright theft but the way the four seasons did it or the four lovers at that time they weren't appropriating they weren't sanitizing everything they were just doing something different and it's something we would probably now know as blue eyes soul and Mm -hmm. that's that's one of the things that make the four seasons pioneers even though they don't get a whole lot of recognition for it yeah that's it i never thought of that but that's, that's so true this is an interesting piece of trivia um because we were talking about clint eastwood and and how you mentioned he was kind of like maybe phoning it in for this, because uh, Clint Eastwood is generally a pretty reliable director, sure. and um, uh, John Favreau was originally signed up to um, direct this movie, which I thought Ooh. was interesting. And when he was casting the movie, um, Eric Bergen, who ended up playing Bob, went through a series of auditions. He played Bob on stage, but I think he might have been an understudy. But I I could be wrong. I, I want to mm-hmm. say Daniel Reichard was the original. Bob Gaudio on stage. Oh, that could be. Yeah. I, I, I could, could be wrong. John Favreau told Eric Bergen no, that he was not right for the part. What ended up happening is John Favreau 
just kind of abandoned the project. And then Clint Eastwood took over and hired Bergen after one audition. Sure. And Bergen did a great job, I thought. <laughs> I thought so too, yeah. John Lloyd Young, I just thought was really, really great. But of course, it's a very lived in role for him. It blew my mind when I found out he was 38 years old when he made this movie. You know, and playing a 16-year-old Frankie Valli, and even in his early childhood, he, he does not look that old. He doesn't. Yeah. But you know, that, that's true to the Four Seasons, too, because you got to remember, when Sherry broke out, Frankie was already 28 years old himself, too, which is pretty yeah. old in the music industry, or certainly was at the time. Tommy was even older. He would have been in his early 30s, around 34 wow. already. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, I didn't think of that. Because they've been trying for years. Actually, you know, Frankie used to say his he was born in 37, so that he would only mm-hmm. appear 25 at the time Sherry came out, not 28. But, of course, he was born in 1934. Oh, right. So, that yeah, he would have been, like, just hovering in around 30. Sure. I mean, yeah, the music industry would drop people when they got to around that age. Mm-hmm. And, you know, even with the Kinks, when the Kinks were first breaking big they had to replace their drummer because he was already 30 years old the actors also they probably in tradition of the original play they all sang the songs live yeah that makes perfect sense that's what they're comfortable doing yeah the, the music day. scenes are, are, are i thought were just fantastic i enjoyed all of them i wish they were more yeah. actually yep well and you gotta remember too this was originally again it was a quote-unquote jukebox musical before you know, the term biopic. Of course, biopic refers to the cinema, whereas jukebox mm. musical is a stage term more. So, One of the most fascinating characters, in my opinion, was Frankie's daughter, uh, Francine, who's such a sad, sure. tragic story. Mm-hmm. And there's, it's funny because there's not like a lot of information out there about her, like even as far as like her birthday and things like that. Sure. I, you know, what parent wants to talk about the death of their children? Right. So I can understand it being very difficult for him to open up widely enough to really, I, it, again, in the, in the stage play, that's definitely fleshed out more, even to the point where they use the song Fallen Angel, which was a, a solo valley song, as kind of a way to eulogize her, because it, it was definitely a fallen angel moment. Yeah. Unfortunately, it was substance abuse that undid her. But I think part of the way or part of the reason she's underplayed has to do with again the, the focus of the story being on the four men and and the group itself yeah um, the storyline with francine certainly works well as part of the winter season because winter you know poetically is a time of death you know and doing what research i did i found out too that wasn't the only child he lost that year. His stepdaughter, Celia, uh, also died that year. The, they say the reason that was cut out was because it was too unrealistic for the film, but it actually happened. She accidentally locked herself out of her apartment and fell off the fire escape. Oh, yeah. oh so that's that was, so sad. That is terrible. Like I said, two, to, for a parent to outlive their child ever, but two in the same year, yeah. I, I and begin to fathom that. You know, it's funny. I, I, as far as the movie goes, I, I actually didn't find her role to be that under underplayed. I thought it was just right. I was very drawn in by it, even though I knew what happened. I was still kind of rooting for her. You know, sure. 
because I knew that she was also kind of pursuing a music career. I wasn't sure how far into that pursuit it was before she ultimately passed away. Um, and it was kind of interesting because it, it was almost like she had just gotten over some of the some of her demons before it just kind of ultimately fell back on her, you know. Yeah, I, I again, I mean, I, I think any recording she may have done would have been locked away in a vault, like yeah. a lot of recordings tend to be sometimes. Yeah, I it would be wonderful to hear them, but I honestly don't know that we ever will. I'm sure Frankie would not be open to that at all and who would blame him not me even the fact that he sanctioned it for the play in the movie was probably very difficult was it therapeutic for him to to talk about it or was it picking at a scab yeah that's a good point yeah that's true who who is to say i mean either way it's definitely brave of him to, to allow that the only problem i had with the portrayal of francine's story arc is that it really messed with the understanding of the timeline at least for me because knowing when these when the songs came out it makes it hard to reconcile the timeline and i mean i say this specifically thinking of can't take my eyes off you which Mm -hmm. was recorded in 67 but francine died in 1980 and the movie made it sound like because of her her, her passing away that he decided to do that song, which was really not the case. <laughs> no. He also had two sons, right, from a, a second marriage. Yep, he has, yep. He has twin boys. Mm-hmm. Yep. He's actually been married three times. Oh, right. Yep. Uh, I, the, the second two wives weren't even portrayed. The, the reporter, Lorraine, was a girlfriend. Never, I don't think he ever actually married her unless Lorraine was you know, the nickname or whatever for one of the wives. But mm-hmm. uh, as far as I know, the Lorraine character never married Frankie. Oh, yeah, that's true. Because I, I remember he said, it, um, and when she was leaving him, like, oh, we could get married. It's trying yeah. to, like, bring her back in. Yeah, but... <laughs> that didn't like, work. Just, yeah. <laughs> Let's circle back to the Can't Take My Eyes Off of You. For Absolutely. Me, yeah, um, that, so that's I, a great song. It is a great song. It's definitely, of all of the Four Seasons catalog, that solo song by Frankie is probably one of the most enduring. It's, yeah, isn't that something? But I love in the movie where they're talking to the record executive, Al. I'm not sure which Al they're talking about. It'd, it'd be wonderful to know. <laughs> um, I, and the point where Al says, it's too hard for pop and it's too soft for rock. Stop and think about that for a moment, because by our standards, it's not too soft for pop. I mean, not at all. But again, you got to think 1967, you know, pop music at the time referred to Frank Sinatra, to Perry Como, to That's you true. Know, that that ilk. I mean, you have songs already out there like Never by Never My Love by the Association, mm-hmm. but the horn section in a ballad like that it was it was an odd combination of the time and kind of makes you wonder is there an argument for calling can't take my eyes off you the first power ballad oh wow i could see that <laughs> or, or a proto power ballad maybe yeah that makes total sense <laughs> i never thought of that but it's it's interesting how it is kind of like sandwiched between like perry cuomo like you said and then you've got like that was the year of like Jimi hendrix and 
<laughs> you know, and a lot of that crazier, heavier stuff, the Rolling Stones even, you know, that's yeah. really interesting. Well, at that time too, the, the Stones were certainly doing a lot of softer songs, yeah. well, softer by their standards, Ruby Tuesday from 66. Yeah. So, that's but again, true. what, what Ruby Tuesday was for the Stones was not in the same, I guess, uh, not sure how I want to say this. It's, mm-hmm. Ruby Tuesday wasn't for the Stones. What can't take my eyes off you was for Frankie Valley. I, I gotcha. Yeah, and that wasn't even Frankie's first solo outing either. He was having solo records before that. Just that was the really big one. With that song, another implication of him going solo was because of the whole mob situation in that section when he had to pay off all those debts. I kind of had originally thought that that was going to be when he recorded Can't Take My Eyes Off of You, but that it, that's not how it was in the movie. And I'm just wondering if maybe that in real life, if that was something that happened. I, it was just kind of something that crossed my mind. Either the actual meeting, as it were, I think some sources would say it was around 1870 or so. I, I tried to look that up. But figure that Tommy DeVito left the group in 1970, 1971, thereabouts. Dick mm-hmm. Matthew was already long out of the group. He left in 65, actually. Oh, wow. Did he leave they, mid-tour like the movie would have you ever say? <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, I do know he wasn't even on Working My Way Back to You, which they performed on the Sullivan show in the movie. Oh, right. He wasn't on that song. That was, um, that was the only hit where producer and arranger Charlie Colello Stepped in, oh, filled okay. that role, and later on, Joe Long uh, filled that role permanently. I gotcha. For, for as long as he was in the group. But uh, as far as when the actual meeting was, I I was trying to find that out. I I think in real life it might have been late sixties, early seventies, around there. I, again, I I don't know for a hundred percent though. But mm-hmm. it definitely is an interesting part of the story, and that's why you have to have it as part of the movie. Or at least in the movie, it certainly is. I again, because we don't know the timeline, who's to say, you know, how big a turning point that was. Especially for the character of of Tommy, that was a big deal. It was, yeah, that definitely. Because again, the the beginning of the movie is from Tommy's point of view. You know, e- even starting with Bob, though, once Bob takes over the the lead point of view, mm-hmm. the portrayal of Tommy is much more negative in a way, and definitely. It all kind of hits rock bottom at that point. It definitely does. Yeah. Although that scene itself, again, from the what I have of the stage play, um, that scene was actually not done as much justice in the movie as it was on on stage. For instance, Nick Massey's rant hmm. about dealing with Tommy is much more dramatic. And I think even a little bit longer mm-hmm. in the play. In the movie, it just kind of translates as to a petty airing of a grievance. Also, the the line about that Walken says to Tommy just before he leaves the room with Norman Wax, he says, Tommy, stay out of my bathroom. Yeah. That, that was a lot funnier on the stage mm. than it was in the movie. Yeah, it was to me... It, it, um... It was kind of like a dividing line, especially in that scene, because the first half felt a little bit more um, lighthearted, and the second half was a little bit more of like the dramatic portion of the show. That's sure. how, that's at least how I read it, and I use the word yeah. comedy very loosely. It's not like you know, yeah. yeah. 
But uh, I mean, other parts of the play that were tended to be a lot funnier just didn't translate as well. Another example of the comedy not translating well, if you go back to when Bob first met the other three, and he goes on that bit about, oh, I have to come in as an equal partner, and he talks in all these music industry terminology about ancillary rights and so oh, forth. Oh, right, yeah. That, that line was actually a little bit longer, I think, in the play, and it certainly was delivered with a lot more, I want to say, legalistic dispensation. He sounded like a lawyer citing legalese. Oh, like all the bit. jargon and, and everything. It's so funny uh-huh. because it really puts it doesn't, I mean, it still translates a little bit, but not to the same degree where Tommy is trying to run things and here you've got this guy who clearly did not fall off the turnip truck. He knows what's <laughs> what and he isn't going to put up with it from Tommy and Tommy is just kind of like, uh, okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, like a deer in headlights kind of thing. That was, that was a lot funnier on stage than it was in the film, but mm. it, it was still pretty good film i will say that it was as far as comedy goes this character was definitely comedy relief was bob crew it's hard to say it's one of those things where i wish i knew what to say um <laughs> the, the bit about liberace was in the stage play too uh-huh. a little bit about you know we thought liberace was just theatrical at the time right. so and they wouldn't have had that line if gaudio hadn't divulged it himself so that had to be authentic if there's and, a lot of like very silly innuendos and, and like little body, little little um, comments and stuff like that, which were harmless. It's fun well, fluff. Well, to us now. Right. But of course, back in those days, even in the 60s, to be out of the closet like that could have mm-hmm. easily have been a death sentence for you as professionally, maybe even personally, if the wrong people found out. So, yeah, that's true. So I have to wonder how flamboyant Bob Crew was in real life or if he could afford to be, I mean, as a music true. producer... As an industry executive, having the power and presumably some of the money, you know, he could have afforded to at least been a little bit more eccentric. Yeah. <laughs> although, although he wasn't quite as rich, at least not at the beginning. As, in fact, when he inducted the Four Seasons into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1990, for mm-hmm. real, he made a comment about how he was down to his, I forget how much money it was, but he had to make a choice between paying rent that month and producing a song called Sherry. It was Sophie's choice, you know? He could either pay his Seriously. rent or pay for a session. Well, I, I got to say it paid off. <laughs> it did. Well, and you can't make it too overblown either. Otherwise, there will be blowback from, from, from the community. Right, yeah. But both, both the LGBTQ plus community would have had their say about it. And mm-hmm. the critics have just panned it outright, too, as being too ridiculous. So. Right. I'm trying to think if there's any more characters that... Oh, I know. Joe Pesci. Yeah, I was just thinking about it. You yeah. Know, that, that whole story is real. It, it, it's incredible. Yeah, him, uh, Joe Pesci and Frankie Valli are real-life buddies. And Tommy DeVito really does work for Joe Pesci these days. I believe he's a chauffeur. Um, I do know that when Joe Pesci recorded the My Cousin Vinny album, Tommy is singing back up on a few of the tracks. I thought the actor did a really good Joe Pesci imp- impersonation. I don't want to even say impersonation makes it sound like I'm I'm belittling it. That's not. It was actually a very good performance. It was. Because of DeVito's 
or at least the character DeVito, maybe not necessarily the, the real life Tommy DeVito, mm-hmm. but the, certainly the character in the movie, the size of his ego, downplaying and even smacking Joe Pesci around like that. It's definitely interesting to think about how Joe would have reacted in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> and realize how he actually did. You know, right. what, was he bullied by Tommy or not? Who knows? Mm-hmm. And as far as the actor had to have been uncomfortable too because I mean Joe Pesci still alive still. yeah still working actually I think I was he was retired and then he came out of retirement to do the Irishman I believe right I guess he had to be dragged kicking and screaming out of retirement to do that movie last year <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> but still I mean he's around and he's present and you don't want to you don't want to upset him <laughs> and he's recognizable for sure just to clarify too would be the Joe Pesci, Tommy DeVito connection. Mm-hmm. A lot of people wonder, you know, was the movie character that Joe Pesci played named Tommy DeVito, was that based on oh. the four And by all accounts, nope. That was just the name that was written. And wow. Joe played the part. But it, it's all conjecture and with no grounding in reality. Joe Pesci, Tommy DeVito was not inspired by the real life Tommy DeVito. Yeah. Wanna, want to address that urban legend right away right (laughs) i wonder what this movie would have been like if martin scorsese directed it that would be a good one to wonder about too because scorsese when it comes to his soundtrack he does a really good job with his film having to keep it to one artist would definitely put the put the muzzle on him in a way but at the same time (laughs) it could have really allowed him to be more expansive and creative in other measures this is, again, kind of making a 180. Um, it was kind of cool to see the, the relationship with the, um, the girls who were in the Angels, the group, the Angels, and they, they, how they have a little performance of My Boyfriend's Back, uh, which yep. I think was in the original, like part of the original uh, song list of the of the musical. Like it was in the actual yep. like soundtrack yep, album and everything. Characters in the Broadway play as well. You know, they were touring girlfriends, I guess. I would have never known that they were, had any connection together. Nor would I. Oh, and I do want to thank you for mentioning the John. I did not know the John Favreau bit, and that certainly explains mm-hmm. why it maybe wasn't as good under Eastwood's direction as it could have been. Because anytime you change director midway through a film, you're going to have problems. Right. And uh, I, I think that definitely makes it more fair to Eastwood to evaluate the movie knowing that. Yeah. That was a, a, a change of director. I kind of wondered if taking direction was difficult for the Broadway actors because they've been playing these roles for three year, years or longer already. Hmm, that's there, true. And, you know, hey, we know these characters, we know how it should be. But from what footage I've seen from behind the scenes, they were just as starstruck to be directed by Clint <laughs> Eastwood as anyone else. So they certainly fell in line as much as any other actor would have. I, I would be totally, you know, beside myself having to work. For, I would be terrified if I had to work for him. It, even with the um, experience playing the parts, you know, I think it would be sure. really intimidating. Knowing what I know about John Favreau, he probably would have been a little bit more difficult to work with. He's an edgier director than Eastwood is. And I think okay. he is a little more rough around the edges. It might have been a more dramatic experience <laughs> making the uh, the movie than it was with Eastwood. But um... except for Vincent Piazza, he was yeah. the one 
member of the Four Seasons on the film who wasn't in the Broadway play at all, and he was actually very nervous mm, mm-hmm. about coming in, but I guess they took him under his wing, and by the time it was over, he was glad he had done it. It was a great experience for him as well. I wonder if having a director, like such a legend as Eastwood, if maybe that helped them in the sense of, you know, a lot of them, it was their first film, and just knowing, you know, like, oh, this is a guy we can really trust to, to get this done in the in the language of movies properly well in as long as he's the director that's the correct thing to do right the director is in charge yep one of the things too is going back to things that the play said that the movie didn't mm-hmm. there was one great line i want to say it was from bob gaudio mm-hmm. during that part of the film where they find out that yeah the teens are liking their music too but where the real audience is are the people who are punching the time clock at the factory. Oh, yes. They're, and that really, I think that explains a lot of why I like their music, just because I come from the Midwest. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I didn't work in a factory, per se, um, but definitely coming from that salt-of-the-earth kind of background. Mm-hmm. And it also really highlights for me as far as the music of the four seasons go what we call you know working class rock and roll i mean the likes of bob Seeger and bruce springsteen and john mellencamp mm-hmm. that whole rockers with the working man kind of ethos about yeah. them that goes back to the four seasons too and i would say that that's probably one of the first groups where that really comes through and Four Seasons even had a few songs like that, just very much about being the working man, trying to get by, and even at the same time trying to find lasting teenage love. Right. (laughs) That's so interesting because they're not a group I would normally immediately associate with that, but it really does make sense, and it comes from such an authentic place, I think. You know, there's a lot of bands, a lot of groups that I think try to do that, but it comes off as forced you can really feel how genuine it is in, in there even just in their harmonies and the way you know that, that, like you can you can hear right you can hear that when you hear them sing together that they were you know that they were huddled under a street lamp and practicing you know at all hours of the night you know whether it's sherry or walk like a man or even their covers of day or ain't that a shame that kind of departs from that mindset and mentality is very smooth and polished when you think of like you said like the working class rock and roll you don't automatically think of of polish but there's still that grit is still there i think in their music just just enough to kind of remind you that no we are real authentic working class people who are here out of our love of music of a very small handful of acts i can think of from the era that i really think are gonna just people are never gonna stop listening to them you know, honestly, like I with the Beatles right. and, and, you know, and the, the Stones and you're, you're going to hear them on the radio forever. I hope so. I, I really hope so, too. And it'll be really great because the Four Seasons have always been kind of considered underdog in a way, too. Yeah, they don't have like the well, same part, rec- name recognition as, you know, like, a you know, Stones well, or something. Well, as we said at the top, too, a lot of people come away from that movie or musical thing i didn't realize the four seasons recorded all these songs that i mm-hmm. love you know definitely underdogs when you compare them even against the beach boys or especially against the beatles and stones right um even in, even within the industry they've just never 
gotten respect. The only album of theirs that was ever acclaimed by any measure by the critics was their 68 album, Genuine Imitation Life Gazette, where mm -hmm. they, it was kind of a concept album, social commentary kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it, that's about the only time they ever received favorable reviews from the critics. They never won a Grammy, not even a Lifetime Achievement Grammy. Wow. It was the Rock Where, Hall of Fame, like basically their only accolade. That was like the first one they really ever got. Wow. They were nominated for Best New Artist, but they lost to Peter, Paul, and Mary. <laughs> Look but, who's endured. Yeah, but, well, I mean, their music has lived on too. They're, they're no spots either. I, I like Peter, True. Paul, and Mary, but I, I seriously wonder if induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 90. <laughs> And then the vocal group Hall of Fame in '99. Yeah. Um, and then the, all the Tonys they won from the Jersey Boys musical. That's, oh, that's that was huge too. Yeah. Yep. They won Best Musical. So mm -hmm. it was. Then Don Lloyd Young. I like I said. I think Daniel Reichardt. There may have been one or two other awards they picked up from that Broadway show. But yeah, where's the Lifetime Achievement Grant? Right. How right. How about some justice from the Grammys there? Or like a Lincoln Kennedy Center honors, you know, that that for Frankie Valley would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> he and he deserves it. Absolutely. You know, it's really interesting as, as we were we were talking and you were, had mentioned, you know, about appreciating that how they're underdogs and things like that and how this is uh, kind of one of the the cornerstones of the jukebox musical. It's interesting how you have like Jersey Boys and Mamma Mia um, and, the, and the jukebox musicals that really exploded were kind of the ones that were based on groups that were maybe a little bit more under the radar when you have, you know, like Queen had a jukebox musical that totally flopped. And, you know, the Beatles have never been able to pull anything like that off. I wonder if, if, if they work a little bit more to kind of remind people of kind of these maybe second tier, quote unquote, groups that that people kind of forget about that are really just as important and um influential as a lot of the titans that we always think about i think it might just be because their stories aren't as well known so when they yeah. hit the broadway stage it's mm -hmm. new and it's fresh it's something you haven't known before and that's that's the draw that's a really good point. Like everybody can know is so familiar with all like the recordings of like Queen and the Beatles that if they're in other people's hands, it, people don't take to that very much. But even then, this was no feat. Another line from the musical that wasn't included in the movie is you ask four guys the story of how their groups came together. You're going to get four different answers and to give each member of the group the chance to give their own story. Mm hmm. Right. That was pretty that's pretty amazing that they did that. And they each had their own season, like you said, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of ironic that Nick Matthews was the fall because <laughs> he like I said, he left the group in sixty five. And so he was probably gone by the time a lot of this drama had already happened. Mm -hmm. And it's also kind of tragic too. I mean, his segment is the shortest not just because it ends with his departure from the group, but he's also, he also passed away in 2000. So oh, he couldn't, yeah. any actor who portrayed him has to go by secondhand accounts. They couldn't take the time to 
get to know Nick and really absorb his spirit, his whole gestalt right. in the band, unfortunately. But I thought, considering the the limited um, access that was there, I thought it w- I thought it worked really well. It did, yeah. I, and I think that comes from the other three members really realizing what needs to happen to make this story good and to do justice for their friends. Yeah, absolutely. When I was reading up on, especially the reviews, because people were very lukewarm about it. Um, a lot of the critics were criticizing the length of the movie, but and and I got to be honest, when I first was looking into it, I was like, "Wow, that is kind of like two and a quarter hours. That seems a little long." But it flew by. It did not feel that long to me when I watched it at all. It only seems long when you're trying to watch the DVD at home and you have to go to bed soon. <laughs> yeah, that's why I I um, purposely watched it in the morning yesterday. Like when yeah. I, after I, I took a shower, got up, and then I was watching it over breakfast and coffee. <laughs> and that was that was perfect for me. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I would say too. One thing too, I noticed is kind of a technical aspect is that the equalization from the songs to the dialogue was very different. Mm-hmm. Like there was a lot of levels, I guess you would say. In, yeah. In terms, the levels were much higher for the songs. Part of that is to definitely highlight the music and i love that but at the same time you have to adjust the volume so this is definitely this is definitely one to see in the theaters so i hope you got the for those who got the chance to see in the theaters you know what i'm talking about yeah but still take the time to see it at home too absolutely and and guys it's on netflix so there's no excuse if you have netflix which a lot of you do (laughs) you're on lockdown Go see it. Yes. <laughs> Don't be afraid of the of the critics. The critics are, you, you know. are. I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of people are, though. And, you know, yeah. and, I mean, if you like the band and you haven't seen it yet, uh, by all means, watch it. And even if you haven't, even if you like, you know, rock and roll biopics, I absolutely recommend this one. You know, I mean, it's not without its its flaws, but no movies are without its flaws. It's a really, really fun and exciting way to spend two and a half hours, I think. Yeah. And. I tell you what, the, the selections of Sherry and Ragdoll over the credits mm. make you want to just stay there through the credits. Not many movies Absolutely. can say that unless they've got a post-credits scene. Yeah. I listen to a lot of Frankie Valley the rest of the day after I watch this, that's for sure. Definitely. Yep. It's just amazing how many hits they had and how many mm. great songs they... Like, we didn't even get to discuss some great deep cuts, but... Why, yeah, yeah, hey, you can name some. I, I'll, I'll, I'll link some on like a YouTube page. If I could even make like a playlist if you want for people yeah, to listen well, to. Yeah, if you send me some song names and stuff, and I'll, I'll, I'll make a playlist. All right, I'll, I'll, I'll say one that I really like, but I gotta talk about this. Why I like it mm-hmm. instead of letting you discover for yourself is a song from the album Half and Half called Sorry. Mm-hmm. Even my fellow Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons fanatics. Do not like this song, but I love it <laughs> because it sounds like an operatic, sad clown kind of song. Okay. And when you hear it through that mentality, it's like, this is brilliant. <laughs> I'm, I'm down. I, I want to listen to that now. <laughs> like, I, I, I almost see this song being used in like a, a phone company commercial. Like, you know, you've been trying <laughs> to reach me and you're getting cut off. <laughs> I I don't know why for some reason I'm thinking of like um like circus music. That's probably not at all accurate, but 
the, the, the horn line is definitely sounds kind of like sad circus clown kind of or thing. like or like Vegasy Wayne Newton kind of thing, I guess. <laughs> okay, definitely not that. Yeah. <laughs> some places we can find you like tell us about where we can access your your hall of fame blog and on social media all that good stuff oh and i gotta throw this out there before you answer i gotta just tell everybody your twitter handle is one of my favorites of all time well my twitter handle is secatash 54 is there a story behind that you know i was trying to come up with a email name and i just you know, in those early days, trying to come up with something clever or witty, and you don't want to use your own name, mm-hmm. <laughs> and you find out everything's been taken or whatnot, yeah. and I just kind of, I was frustrated, and the first word that came to mind was psychopath. <laughs> it's brilliant. No lie. It's the 54 perfect. 54 stands for 1954, though, when one of the generally accepted first years of rock and roll breaking through with Bill oh. Healy and the Comet Shake, Rattle and Roll mm-hmm. breaking through with the top 10. So I chose 54, 1954, showing my love of rock and roll there. That's fantastic. I love it. <laughs> and how about how about your blog? Um, where, where can we find your blog? If Because I, I know that yes. there's some hall, hall watchers who are listeners. So if they haven't already found it, where can they find it? If you haven't already <laughs> found it, it's Rock Hall monitors blogspot.com dot blogspot.com um i I have a personal one too although that's nowhere nearly as interesting but (laughs) i'll i'll save that for another time Uh, but yeah i'm not as frequent as i used to be part of that is because i'm busy working but i do try to write a few entries a year to keep things going so that's where I post all my Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thoughts. That's that's great. And you can always find me on the futurerocklegends.com website too as part of the community there. For the podcast, you can you can send me or even Philip if you have any thoughts if if we missed anything or if you want to talk about the movie at uh, movies at rockpod at gmail um, Please leave a review. I'm good with positive or negative reviews. <laughs> On, on Apple Podcasts. and I'm a um, bit more fragile, so positive only. Okay. <laughs> to be fair, I have a grand total of one review so far, and it's positive. So so we're, we're, we're doing okay so far. But leaving reviews, it does help people to find the show, which is which is always a good thing. And um, Oh, yeah, and, and for Twitter, you can follow at um, RockMoviesPod is a Twitter handle. That's the correct Twitter handle. <laughs> I didn't mix it up this time. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, and so I, again, I want to give you a big thank you, and uh, and in a thank you in another way for um, everything that you're doing right now in this in this time we're going through as an essential worker. Please, please, please keep yourself safe and healthy, and and um, and we really really appreciate everything that you're doing right now, and and so so a big thank you thank for that you. as well. 
So I, I don't consider myself a hero, but I am certainly grateful to the people who think of me that way and take care of yourselves too. Yeah, it's it, what you're doing is is not easy, and it just it's really you're very very appreciated right now. I will be talking to you really soon. Stay safe. Thank you. You too.